Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive, our weekly podcast where we share our stories of starting and running our float centers, where we love it when you join us as we work together to raise our education level on building, marketing, and running our float centers. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art of the Float and on artofthefloat.com to find show notes, links from pictures, all that good stuff from every episode. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dylan. I own the float shop in Portland, Oregon with my wife, Sandra. I'm joined with Amy Grimes of Float Nashville and Float Alchemy. Hi, Amy. Welcome. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you this week, Dylan? I'm pretty good. Thank you very much. Um, it's been. A, it, I swear, I feel like we just recorded an episode. Um, time has just flown by so so fast. But uh, yeah, it's been a good one, and there's some some cool stuff to talk about with the shop. Um, well, they say time flies when you're having fun. So that's how much right. Fun well, have we've you been. been having? <laughs> <laughs> we had a big sale and um, seeing, seeing money come in um, as not a terribly greedy person still feels pretty good. So uh, it was nice after a, a little bit of a drought this summer to see um, just a lot of people excited to be floating. Um, you know, obviously the purchases, but it also means our, our floats have really filled up and we're seeing old faces again at the float shop. And it's really fun for our employees, especially uh, the ones who have been around for a while. So that's been been pretty fun. Um, we have Flux on this evening, and I'll bring him on in just a minute here. If you didn't see MC Flux, is how he's I uh, was introduced at the float conference. Uh, he'll be joining us tonight. He moved a lot of people. I missed his presentation, which I'm still kicking myself for. Uh, it apparently even included uh, some major components about evolution, which is just right up my alley and just a, a true passion of mine, a human evolution. Uh, so I'll be really excited to bring on Flux here in just a few minutes. Um, do want to also, sorry, I forgot Brian, of course, Brian behind the scenes. Engineer Brian is back there. Producer Brian uh, may join the podcast as well. And I uh, just want to give a couple thanks here before we get going. First, Jessica Dubeck, thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. It means so much to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just a reminder to everybody who supports at the $10 level or higher receives a high quality photo set of people floating that you can use for your social media, email blasts, websites, all that good stuff uh, on Art of the Float. So thank you. Thanks again, Jessica. Also want to give a shout out to Helm, floathelm.com, of course, is where you want to go to schedule your free tour to uh, learn everything that Helm does for scheduling your floats, scheduling your massage, your acupuncture, having the logbook, which I talk about a lot for uh, having the ongoing discussion between all of your employees and also has project management in there. And then something else that we really, really enjoy having is the uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the metric counter, but basically you get to log uh, everything that's going on with your float tanks, the how high, the volume of water that's in there, the, or the height of the water, um, how much Epsom salt is in there, how much hydrogen peroxide you have in there. All that stuff can be tracked. If the city ever comes knocking and wants to know what's going on in your float tanks, you can give them the entire history of what's been going on in each individual float tank, all thanks to Float Helm. Again, they give a free live tour of Float Helm and make sure that it can work for your float center. So there's really no reason not to go to floathelm.com and schedule a tour. All right, Amy, I think we're both excited to have Flux on tonight. I think we just want to jump in and, and bring him on. Is that right? Is there, is there something Sounds... incredibly pressing you want to share? <laughs> no, you know, that sounds good to me. As someone who couldn't make the... Uh, the uh, conference this year. I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to uh, hearing whatever I can and kind of uh, listening for myself at, mm -hmm. well, Flux, your talk has certainly had people buzzing. So I'm looking forward to learning some new stuff tonight. 
Flux, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm doing wonderful. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you guys. Awesome. Likewise, obviously. Uh, can you give a little background on who Flux is or MC Flux? And, uh, <laughs> that yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> Let me see if I can <laughs> condense this down. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> Flux uh, was a performance name uh, from when I lived in New York City. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, it has grown into uh, something that really embodies who I am. You know, flux means change. And uh, I'm a big proponent of uh, growing and changing uh, as is needed. Uh, and so it's a little reminder. Like, being able to have that as my name is just a reminder to keep growing. Uh, that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Um, from a professional standpoint, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in biotechnology from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. I worked for a year doing agricultural biotech. Uh, then I went into a PhD program at NYU in neuroscience. Um, I worked with primates uh, for three years before I realized that I did not want to work with primates anymore. Uh, and I decided to uh, take some time off. Uh, I left with a master's from NYU. Uh, and I took a couple years and refocused and realized that what I'm most passionate about is uh, neuroscience and mental health. Uh, and really the only degrees that, that you can do that in uh, is in clinical psychology. Uh, so now I'm at CU Boulder. Uh, I just finished the first milestone of my PhD program here. I got another master's uh, on Friday, which is pretty nice. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I've probably got uh, about three more years left on the PhD. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, well, and, and I can tell you the story about how I got involved in Float, but that's that's the brief snapshot of me. Great. Thank you. And yeah, let's continue. I'd, I'd love to know how it got to the Float world. Yeah. Um, well, I very, very circuitously, I I got to grad school at CU Boulder and the person that I came here to work with, uh, it just, things didn't work out and I ended up finding myself without an advisor. And um, I uh, I was kind of shopping around for different people to work with and I ran into a researcher by the name of Chris Lowry. Uh, and Chris Lowry does a lot of work with a microbiome and uh, some immunology. And uh, we kind of, I don't know, I call them like academic dates. Like we, we would have these little like coffee sessions and we would talk about um, like our shared interests and things like that. And, you know, after about three of those, he was like, well, he's like, you're interested in neuroscience. You have a molecular biology background. He's like, and you want to apply it to clinical problems. He's like, I'm looking for someone who can, you know, take all of these new clinical studies that we're getting in our lab and, and really be able to help us to, to analyze them. And, um, and I was looking for summer funding at the time. And he was like, well, how about I put you on this project and we'll see how things go. And uh, I was like, okay, what's the project? And he's like, are you familiar with floating? Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, not, not really. Oh, really? Okay, uh, cool, cool. And, uh, and so he, um, he gives me this, this pilot project for Justin Feinstein uh, as we were doing uh, we were doing analysis uh, of the uh, immune analysis for some of his pilot work and uh, and he gives me this project and he, he thinks it's going to take me half the summer and I finish it in a weekend uh, and he was like <laughs> <laughs> can we can we can we pause right there how is that physically possible how did that happen um I have a really strong statistical background, uh, and people in molecular biology don't tend to. 
uh, in uh -huh. psychology, uh, it's really important. Um, in neuroscience, um, statistics are important, but also is a very higher level understanding of math. Uh, and so I have a bit of a math background, and so he he gave me this project that he thought was going to you know take all this time, and I, I wrote a script over the weekend, and and I had the whole thing analyzed, oh and <laughs> I sent it to him, and 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 he sends it to Justin, and Justin's yeah. like, who is this guy? What's yeah. going on? That's the and... appropriate question. <laughs> <laughs> Introduce me uh, to this man. Yeah. <laughs> and so that summer, I did a road trip out to. Well, I did a road trip uh, across. Uh, the east coast and back and on the way i stopped at uh, uh liber and i got to meet justin and we just we we connected really fast and cool. uh and so i've you know the rest is history <laughs> well yeah let's talk about that history a little bit more that thank you gosh that's awesome it's <laughs> <laughs> a fun story and uh we so we got to the to the float world can you can you start talk telling me about what um, you started looking into once you did join into researching the float aspect. Yeah, so you know the the thing about this, uh, and and what what I really tried to do with my presentation is is that the connections here are not as obvious as as you would think. Um, you know, if you go on the internet and start looking up float in the immune system you get a million different connections. You get, yes, float boosts the immune system, or you get, no, float fights inflammation. And, you know, those are kind of one and the same and opposite at the same time. Um, and so in understanding the relationship that the immune system might play in float, it took a lot of research on what role the immune system plays in general health to begin with. Hmm. Uh, and so our questions were very basic in that we were looking at different immune markers and how they change in response to float and how that interacts with, you know, anxiety. Um, but really understanding why that's so awesome <laughs> takes, you know, uh, a deeper understanding of kind of the interaction of our stress systems and the immune systems to begin with. Mm -hmm. and, and that was what I made the whole talk about. And so uh, my assumption is that the Flow Conference will be releasing your presentation, uh, which is awesome. However, it's not out yet. And so yes. I'm hoping that we can bridge the gap a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you to give a 35-minute presentation with slides oh, no. tonight. <laughs> but if you'd go ahead and do that, that would be awesome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if, if in any way, if we could, oh gosh, I, now I'm embarrassed to even ask you to do this, but to summarize or truncate in any way, yeah. um, some of your presentation, I think our listeners would appreciate it, including myself. Oh, no worries. Yeah, no, okay. I think, and I mean, that's 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 why I do this. <laughs> that's what, I mean, like, I, I love giving talks. I love presenting. I am at home on a stage, so it's, it. you know, the, the float conference <laughs> okay. was, was pretty awesome. Wonderful. Um, so, you know, the body has these two stress systems, um, and most people probably don't think of them as two different stress systems because... You know, the scientific world in general doesn't do a good job of explaining this. Um, we have what most people know as the fight or flight. Uh, and then we have uh, something called the HPA axis. Uh, and its output is cortisol. And most people have heard of cortisol. Mm -hmm. um, and the system of stress that, that activates our fight or flight and the system of stress that activates our HPA axis and leads to the release of cortisol they act together. They're very complementary, and they have very different purposes based off of how we evolved to function in the face of stress. Mm. The fight or flight system 
um, which is also known as the sympathetic nervous system, um, activates in response to uh, present danger. Um, you know, in my talk, I went back and, and used, you know, cave, cave woman, Clara was her name. Uh, and I talked about how, you know, she was being attacked by her saber-toothed tiger. Hmm. And um, that type of response leads to a very specific biochemical cascade in the body that allows you to escape or fight. And, and you're talking about like literal life and death has yeah. a, your body will have a particular response okay yeah well at least that's how it evolved and we'll get we'll get to how that's a little different now um but so that's the first oh, system okay. <laughs> you know you've got the sympathetic nervous system that evolved for us to be able to run away or to fight um and then you've got this system that ends in cortisol the hpa axis that stands for hypothalamus pituitary adrenal glands um and it's just because that's the the order that they get activated uh, uh -huh. And the adrenal glands release cortisol. Okay. Um, and cortisol is more for long-term stress. Um, it's involved in starvation. It's involved in extreme physical activity. Uh, it's involved when your body says, okay, I'm stressed out right now, but I kind of need to survive for a while. Uh -huh. um, and the interesting thing is the timing in which they happen and what they do. So the fight or flight system, that sympathetic nervous system response, that happens very fast, seconds. Um, and the HPA axis is a lot slower. And what it tends to do is that if there's no reason for you to be stressed out, it kind of works on shutting everything down. Hmm. Um, and then if there is a reason for you to be stressed out, then it kind of kicks into gear and prepares your body um, by changing the way that your metabolism works and a lot of other things. Uh, that allow you to survive in the long term. Can I ask, uh, and, and you may be going in this direction already, but yeah, yeah. if I have a, a paper due, <laughs> you got me thinking about school. If I've got a paper due on Friday and it's early in the week and I'm stressed out about that, which response is that uh, is affecting me? So that's a really good question. Um, and the answer is it kind of depends. Uh, it depends on your interpretation of the situation. Huh. It depends on how long it lasts. Um, and that's what so, uh, has become so maladaptive in modern days is that most of the time a paper is not going to lead to us needing to run away right. uh, or fight. You know, that there isn't anything to fight besides yeah. maybe your teacher. Um, Fair. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, the systems have become maladaptive in that mm. they uh, get activated uh, in times when we don't need them. Mm. And so to add one more layer of complexity onto this to kind of bring it to the immune system is that the immune system activates in response to stress. And there's a very specific reason for that. Um, the sympathetic nervous system, particularly that fight or flight response, um, it evolved for us to deal with things that could hurt us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in the presentation I used for the, the float conference, uh, I had a saber-toothed tiger. Uh, and the idea behind that was that it's, it's this representation of, of danger. And um, Clara, who was the character I used, she could have potentially been attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, which would have led to injuries. She could have been cut. She could have been scratched. She could have had a broken bone. Same thing could have happened if she ran away and she tripped. Um, and so the body has basically evolved to prepare us 
for these, what used to be inevitabilities. Um, you know, our stress systems evolved for us to be able to respond to uh, potential threats that could hurt us. And so having the immune system turn on was super adaptive. Um, and the other side of that is that cortisol, that other stress system, yeah. actually shuts down the immune system. So the timeline of all of this is really interesting, right? So you have a threat, uh, and historically these threats would lead to injury. And so as a response, our body activates the sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight response, and that in turn also activates the immune system. Uh, and then a little bit later, cortisol comes in from the HPA axis, and if you're not injured, it shuts the whole thing down. If you are injured, and if there's a reason for your body to have inflammation, there's mm. this tug of war that happens between cortisol and your inflammatory system. And your inflammatory system is kind of allowed to activate all the way until it's not needed anymore. And mm. when it's not needed anymore, that tug of war goes back in the direction of cortisol and cortisol shuts the whole thing down. Um, this is how it evolved to work. Uh, and this is how you know we evolved to be able to deal with threat and the potential for injury but there's a lot of ways in which it can go awry uh, and the biggest is when our body stops paying attention to cortisol uh, and there's a lot of reasons why that can happen um, it happens in some uh, mental health conditions it also happens in response to early childhood adversity hmm. uh, and by that i mean really extreme adversity things like abuse or um, poverty, uh, basically experiences that put children in extreme stressful situations. Uh, and the reason why it's important or why it's, it's, uh, pertinent that it's ch childhood stress is that we've evolved to adapt to the environments that we're raised in. Uh, you know, it made sense if you grew up in a really stressful environment that you were probably going to be in that same stressful environment for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in modern day society, that's not always true. Uh, but back, you know, when this developed or when, when we evolved, um, you know, if you were super stressed out, you were probably going to be super stressed out later. And so what that meant functionally was that if you were going to be stressed out for the rest of your life, you still needed your body to work. And if you constantly had this cortisol signal through your veins for your entire life, it would turn off all of your inflammatory responses. It would do a lot of other things that would be negative. And so it was adaptive, if you're a child who deals with that kind of stress, to stop paying attention to cortisol. Mm -hmm. And so what this means functionally is that, you know, individuals who dealt with extreme childhood stress, um, when they grow up into adults, and they have a stressful circumstance um, that activates the sympathetic nervous system and then activates the immune system, because their body isn't paying attention to cortisol, it can lead to perpetual inflammation. And that is one of the main mechanisms that we currently understand how individuals who dealt with early childhood stress are at higher risk for things like autoimmune disorders, uh, inflammatory disorders, cardiovascular disorders, and mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. And so when you see somebody with one of those symptoms, is that one of the first things you look for, is childhood trauma? Mm. 
Not necessarily. Okay. I think that's one route that you can get there. Okay, um, got it. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people can have uh, any one of those different different issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, that's what we're learning. And that's why, you know, if you look at mental health in particular, it's so challenging to understand how to treat because some of these individuals might be depressed, for example, because they had early childhood adversity. Some of them might have high inflammation. Some of them might have something completely different. Some of them might have a different balance of neurotransmitters, you know. Uh, and this is the challenge of mental health care is being able to identify which one pairs with which patient and mm -hmm. really find the treatments that are going to be the most effective for them. Um, because sometimes the treatments that'll be, well, for example, um, if you have someone that has an, has an inflammatory mediated depression, um, they may respond to anti-inflammatory drugs. But if you take someone who has a different form of depression, anti-inflammatory medication might actually make them worse. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, I think the, the next step in really understanding mental health care is really being able to understand the different subtypes of all of these different types of problems that people experience. Uh, that, that's really fascinating. And I think it puts it in a different perspective than I've ever, ever seen it before. I, I know um, of, of mental coping mechanisms that are designed for our individual survival, but also survival of, of our society. But this is a really interesting different take on uh, the necessities of, of survival and how um, it may have worked historically for other animals and throughout our history until today where our, our lives are a lot different where, and maybe we weren't necessarily intended or ever expected, expected as if someone was expecting uh, us to live this long where these uh, effects would, where we'd want to quote unquote fix them. Uh, is interesting and, and an interesting way to, to look at it of like this was a, a proper response for that your body was doing in in a more natural setting if I'm not sure if that's exactly the right word more natural setting no um, yeah no I think I think you know in I don't know I like to I like to think more in terms of the way the environments that we evolved to there we to, go you know exist in and mm -hmm. the one thing I'd like to add that I, I'm realizing I didn't I didn't say because um, you were talking about um, how, you know, these behaviors make sense. And, and that is the connection between the immune system and mental health. Um, mm. In that uh, the immune system, in addition to fighting infection and allowing us to heal from injury, also manipulates our behaviors and our thought patterns. And it does this for very specific reasons. Um, there's something that certain uh, corners of the scientific literature refer to as sickness syndrome. And sickness syndrome is a collection of behaviors that appear in response to inflammation that have evolved to help us to stay healthy or to allow our immune systems to work. Uh, and sickness syndrome includes things like uh, inability to experience pleasure, uh, decreased motion, um, mm -hmm. decreased appetite, uh, social withdrawal, um, and all of these symptoms that really look like depression in the way that we know it yeah and they had adaptive reasons um you know not having you move as much would stop you from walking on a broken leg and having you not feel pleasure will stop you from doing anything so that you can rest and allow your body to mm -hmm. heal mm -hmm. um you know uh same thing social withdrawal you're not infecting other people if you might be sick mm -hmm. uh we have all of these mechanisms that have their place and are adaptive in a way for us to heal but 
in a dysregulated system, as often occurs in modern times, uh, it's, it doesn't serve the same functions. Interesting. Amy, it looked like you had a... <laughs> Go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just thinking what this means in terms of, of how we live. The way that we live these days is very different, and we're under almost constant stress and constant uh, disruption, and uh, there is it's constant simulation. Uh, where we feel stress almost all the time, whether it's just overwhelmed from information or just, you know, <laughs> there's just so much going on. All of us are living lives with very full plates. Um, and this right. means some pretty big things when we think about it in that context as well. Okay. We're, we're almost designed for this very narrow particular path. And all of a sudden we're just throwing in all this different, these different routes that we could potentially go down that, that change constantly. This um, somewhat reminds me of the presentation I gave at RISE this year about the default mode network and how we used to think it was only in people. It turns out it's in animals. And I could, I mean, this is this would could never get published. It's very loose research. Um, but um, gosh, I think it was uh, default uh, mode network is present in mice. And the earliest views of mice we can see are millions and millions of years ago. I, I can't think of what's after Jurassic at the moment, but um, the fact that these systems have been in us since long before we were anything near what we could call human, or I mean, anything that would be somewhat close to that. Um, so like just how rigidly we have been defined to uh, coexist with our environment. And then in just, you know, you could say a couple thousand, but even just, I mean, Truly, I think even in the past 50 years, um, an explosion of these things grabbing our attention, dopamine, stressing us out, but certainly within the last few hundred years, uh, which might be the segue to floating. I'm hoping there's that floating is helping with all of this. Uh, am I? <laughs> is that why you're on, sir? <laughs> is that a part of it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we think that floating is definitely in some way interacting with the immune system. Uh, hmm. You know, the study that, that I was able to, to analyze and work with, with Justin on this summer, um, you know, is very preliminary and it, it showed some interesting results in that individuals who were high in anxiety seemed to decrease in certain specific inflammatory markers in response to float. Uh, and so the question is, you know, is, is there an interaction, you know, is this happening in people who might already be predisposed for, you know, having a higher inflammatory response? We're not sure. And, um, I think one of the, the things I'm excited about is, you know, fingers crossed if the, the clinical trial that, that we're trying to get off the ground gets funded, you know, is, is looking at multiple float sessions. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it is hard to find, uh, an immediate change, I think, in response to a single float. Um, hmm. Additionally, there are some methodological changes that I think we, you know, could implement that we learned from the first experiment in, in different times that we could actually be looking for markers, as opposed to when we did in the last one. So okay. there's a lot of a lot of promise, and I think a lot of uh, hope in in what we can find because you know I would put my money on the fact that. If you put someone through eight float sessions and you're helping them to decrease their cortisol levels, like, you know, you're probably going to also be helping them to decrease inflammatory markers. But, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what what the data show. And and 
pardon my ignorance, but can you tell me a little bit more about inflammation and how that, so like, what does it mean to have cortisol running through our system more frequently? What does it mean to have inflammation? What effects does that have on our system when it's not maybe as intended? <laughs> yeah, that, that is a huge question. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, let me think how, 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 yeah, I mean, let me distill like all of my, my <laughs> semester's of immunology into a soundbite. Yeah, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, into it. Yeah. Into 140 characters, please. Actually 280. Yeah. 280. So, um, we have, and, and this was, I, you know, I worked really hard on this in the presentation to try and simplify this, you know, our inflammatory system have kind of a couple major players, right? We have cellular players. Uh, and they are specialized cells that are in our body that play different roles that allow us to respond to pathogens uh, and to fight infection. Uh, and those cells use chemical messengers, many of which are known as cytokines. And those cytokines all do a variety of different things, from signaling to other cells and telling them how to respond or how to change, to changing the very nature of our blood vessels so that they're more leaky so that immune cells from the blood can enter into our tissues that are infected. Um, and so all of these different, you know, cytokines and other cellular or other molecular markers um, play different roles. And it can go anywhere from something like the cytokine IL-6, which communicates with the liver uh, and allows for the release of another cytokine called CRP, which facilitates the clearance of bacteria uh, to something like tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is a cytokine which uh, increases vascular permeability. Uh, and if you have too much of that, you're just going to have tons of internal bleeding. So it's a balance to IL-1 beta, which can communicate with the vagus nerve uh, that can go all the way into the brain and, you know, also change our temperature in coordination with a couple other markers and allow us to have fevers. So um, there's a lot of different ways that the immune system on a molecular level can affect the body. Mm -hmm. I, and so you're talking about the immune system and so, so that is impacted by, uh, cortisol, correct? Mm -hmm. Like cortisol is saying, so that, um, sorry, I'm going to try to put together what you're talking about earlier, but cortisol is going to decrease uh, your immune response, correct? As opposed yeah. to the... Uh, the fight or flight, which means it's going to go, hey, we might have had an injury here. We need to get on that. Um, but those are two very uh, broad, I, I feel like swinging a club, you know, fight or flight is just this broad sword swing, um, as is uh, the cortisol, maybe not such a broad sword swing, but it seems very kind of binary, either, um, maybe binary isn't the right word, but um, well, fight or flight feels more binary to me. Uh, cortisol can either be a lot or a little, but it's either on on a lot or off. Um, but what you were describing with the immune response is these very intricate, tiny little changes uh, in your body to, to be healing itself. All those things are truly um, affected by these basic on-off switches of our stress response. Well, I'm really glad that you put it that way because they aren't on-off switches. Um, so cool. the, sympath <laughs> the sympathetic nervous system's end product is adrenaline and noradrenaline, also known as epinephrine and norepinephrine. Um, and they are our sympathetic nervous system's active all the time. Uh, it's hmm. a part of our arousal system. The ability for us to stay alert and pay attention is all due to basal levels or you know constant levels of adrenaline running through our veins. 
Sure, um, okay. You know, it's in response to an extreme stressor that that peaks and goes to higher levels. Um, but it's really a gradient. And it's the same thing with cortisol. Um, you know, one of the things people ask me, or I get a question a lot about in response to my talk, is that like, okay, so why can't we just like, you know, find a way to block cortisol? Hmm. And that would be like one of the worst things you could do to your body. Because the thing is, is our cortisol levels follow a diurnal rhythm and they entrain every clock in our body. So we have a master clock in our brain in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that allows the entrainment of the release of cortisol in a rhythm that changes throughout the day. And that cortisol concentration then changes all of the little tiny clocks throughout our body that allow us to run on a 24-hour cycle. Wow. And so if you stopped cortisol, you would lose the ability to run <laughs> on a diurnal rhythm. Um, so it's a, it's a gradient. As a major layman on this side, can you tell me a little bit more about all the clocks throughout the body? Why is it not all just running off of one clock? How does that work? Um, well, they are running off of one clock through cortisol. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Those I mean, are connected. And, yeah. Yeah. And they, it can't, it can't all because we have clocks in so many different body systems, right? It's not just systems that might have direct access to a neuron. So you couldn't necessarily mm. have an electrical impulse that would entrain every single clock in your body. Okay. Um, and so it, it helps to have, you know, a hormone in the form of cortisol that can help to entrain clocks throughout your body based off of that signal in your brain that is that is creating your clock. Can you put it together for me why cortisol would be the thing to be running that clock? The same, you know, the same response for starvation or for, you know, the slow stressors in our life? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think part of it is just kind of it's how it evolved. <laughs> uh, but it's also, it's, you know, cortisol is about survival. Um, your daily rhythms are about survival. Being able to know when you're awake and when you need to be asleep, you know, is crucial for being able to live and grow and survive. And, mm -hmm. you know, cortisol at its extreme is just a more extreme version of being able to survive and go about your daily life. It just, you know, it does it at an extreme level when you have huge amounts of it, mm -hmm. but it, you know, normal amounts, it just lets you live your life. Cool. Thank you. Great. So you're excited to find out the over multiple floats, how this is going to be impacting our immune yeah. system, stress response. Um, how is that? And so I know funding is not fully secured. Um, that, that needs to happen for this project to take place. What are metrics are you going to be looking at to be, um, you know, float to float? What are you going to be checking in with on each patient? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of different metrics, um, some of which aren't even related to the studies that I'll be a part of. Um, but we'll be looking at things like blood pressure, things like EEG. Uh, we'll be looking at EKG. Um, and then on my end, we'll be doing uh, blood draws uh, at different time points after each float. Um, probably, uh, we're still in the process of trying to figure out how to design it. You know, things are still, you know, it's all in, in flux. Um, yeah. As, as we wait to wait to make sure we can get funding. Mm. Um, but, you know, once once that happens and we can go ahead with it, really designing a way to adequately capture a lot of these immune markers in a way that will give us the, the most information um, and also when to measure it. You know, it's uh, definitely, I mean, at the first float and at the last float, but, you know, do we want to do it at the middle of floats and when and how? And uh, so there's a lot of, questions that I am in the process of trying to answer and understand so that we can get um, 
data that's going to give us the the highest highest probability of finding something. Mm -hmm. Is there is the only opportunity to check blood while they're there for a float? Uh, uh, as mean, opposed to, I mean, I'm sure you're not driving out to their house, but um, is it possible for them to show up, um, you know, if they're floating every week in between, you know, two floats, something like that? Or is it always right around that, that uh, float time? I mean, if that was appropriate, I, I we could totally do that, I think. I mean, they could come in for, a, you know, in between session and just get a blood draw. Uh, I think uh, that the, the most... Uh, informative, you know, data will come from the time following the, the floats. Okay. Um, and and we'll, we will have baselines from beforehand that we can compare. Sure. Um, so, it, you know, I, I guess I guess one of my thoughts in, in the way that we're planning this is, is to maximize where we can find something and then go on to other secondary questions. So, mm -hmm. you know, how their immune system is in between floats is super interesting. But I think that there's less of a chance of us finding something there. So, okay. you know, I would rather maximize our our time and, and money and efforts on, course. on yeah. time points that, that that might be might be most most informative. Understood. Thank you. <laughs> what all will you be looking for um, in the blood? What's do you have specific uh, things that you're going to be measuring? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so like I was talking about, there are these molecular markers called cytokines, mm -hmm. uh, and we have a panel of 10 of them that we're going to be looking at. Hmm. Um, and they are, there's a variety of them and they all serve very different purposes. Um, like I was mentioning, uh, the, the three that I mentioned before, uh, IL-6, IL-1 beta and tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF alpha are kind of like, um, I don't, they're like the big three. They uh, they initiate something called the acute phase response, uh, which is one of the body's and the immune system's main ways of dealing with large-scale infections. Uh, and so uh, seeing whether they're expressed gives us an idea of what kind of immune response the, the people might have or what may be being decreased. Um, but there's other ones too. There are uh, cytokines like IL-1-alpha, IL-12, uh, IL-4, IL-10. IL-10 is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. So some of these uh, molecular signals actually turn down the immune system. Uh, and so we have, we have one that, that does that. Interesting. And so is your overall goal to, to identify who, assuming the float tank can help, who can seek benefit through floating and, and see a difference in their body's health and mental health? Yeah, you know, I think my overall goal is to legitimize float. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to be able to figure out how we can help people. But the thing is, is that as you know, as I know, as so many people I've talked to know, flotation therapy is transformative. Hmm. Um, but we need to have data to back that. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to point to how this is helpful so that we can disseminate this to larger populations of people who need it. And, you know, I, that's also why, like, if I don't find anything in the immune system, I mean, like, I have a hunch I will, but if I don't, I would still see that as, as a success and that we are finding out what float is doing and why it is helpful. And then 
I hope to be able to find the people that it can help the most. Awesome. Great. <laughs> so you did not know about floating or, or much about floating uh, when it was first introduced to you. What has your personal float story been like? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, I've been floating more more regularly. Uh, Samana Float Center, shout out in Denver. <laughs> I've nice. been floating with them. They're awesome. <laughs> Paul awesome. and Heather are amazing. Uh, I've been floating there more regularly this semester because I... I'm a workaholic and I never relax. So this is super helpful. Um, Sweet irony. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, before this, my, I mean, all I knew was stranger things, right? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we're on that timeline. All right. That pinpoints it for me. Great. That's Um, great. Yeah. And, and so when I started on the project, I started floating and uh, I am trying to up the amount that I do it because I, I really need it. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, personally it's, it's, it just resets. I feel like it's a reset. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like I get into that tank, I float for 90 minutes, I walk out and I I feel like I'm recharged for another week. Like, uh, and, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I'm doing currently is, so I practice very obsessive life tracking. Um, so I've been, I've been tracking my life for six years now. Uh, and I track about a hundred variables every day, uh, mood related, health related substance, anything I could possibly think of tracking is all in that massive spreadsheet. And so I'm in the process of trying to run my own personal analysis, looking at the effects of flow Ah. on, you know, behavioral, behavioral information. So, uh, I need a couple more weeks of data collection, I think, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's another one of the ways that I've been looking at some of this stuff. Flux, you're a very interesting person. <laughs> you you seem incredibly creative. Like you said, you're you're also a workaholic. Um, your your brain um, seems to be always always on. Um, I I find you very interesting. This is just very interesting to me. <laughs> I'm I, glad. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. I can be interesting on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only am I glad you're interesting on a podcast, I'm I'm glad you're in the in the float industry as well. Just yeah. uh, that's that's really exciting for me. Uh, what what else do you do what are your other outlets uh, now i'm just a little curious about you sir um road trips so okay. uh especially since i've done grad school this time around i've realized that the only time that i um like really stop working is when i'm driving because i can't do anything else <laughs> so uh i try and i try and go on several road trips a year uh the, sometimes they're short. Like I did a four-day Labor Day weekend road trip. I, I just went to Corn Palace in, in uh, South Dakota because it was nine hours away and I wanted to drive. So, uh, cool. yeah, I do that. Uh, I like to travel. I've been trying to do like one to two international trips a year when I've got like breaks in between semesters. So uh, I went to uh, Istanbul and Tbilisi, Georgia uh, in the, right after spring semester. Wow. I was there for about 10 days. So. Um, so I'm sure you're aware of the term of flow state. Um, oh yeah. Do you, do you feel like when you're driving, you enter a flow state? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're working, do you enter a flow state or is it only when you're doing something like travel? Uh, I think it depends on the work, uh, coding mm-hmm. for sure. Like yeah. when I'm coding, it is just, you know, complete flow state. You lose mm-hmm. track of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also when I'm making illustrations, uh, you know, so illustrating things, uh, whether I'm physically drawing or I'm doing it digitally is just very much a flow state. Very, very in the zone with that. 
And, and uh, for anybody who didn't see your presentation, and again, I didn't, but I did hear it was about a 35-minute presentation. And how many slides did you have? Oh, yeah, I had like almost 300. I think it was 289 <laughs> slides. Uh, Slightly above standard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, most people have a minute per slide. For me, it's like 10 seconds because it's, it's, like, you know, it's like a movie. I've got like a little movie I have the clicker for to, yeah, to play in the background. Tr truly is, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, what are your aspirations beyond um, this research project? And, and obviously, you, you talked about um, kind of validating float itself, but um, what are your personal aspirations? Yeah, so um, my interest has always been in what they call translational research, is, you know, being able to do work that goes beyond the bench, goes beyond the, you know, laptop, and, and is actually able to affect people. And the questions that interest me the most are the ones that lie at the intersection of neuroscience, uh, molecular biology, and mental health. And so uh, that's why this project is so perfect for me in that it really allows me to take a look at that interplay at a deeper level. Uh, and so, you know, for the future, I would really, you know, I, I want to be a research scientist. I want to have my own lab. I want to, um, you know, mentor students. I, I currently uh, am mentoring four different undergraduate students on a completely unrelated project about social identity in sports. Um, oh, wow. And that was what my master's was on, actually. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and of course, me being me, the entire introduction was Star Wars themed. Uh, well done. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, 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 I love mentoring students. I love doing research. Uh, and that's, that's where I see myself, you know. And, and this, is, this is just a big step in being able to do that. And, and also disseminating information, you know. Giving talks and being able to Clearly. speak in public is something that I find incredibly rewarding, uh, and so I'm I uh, I'm not stopping that anytime soon. <laughs> awesome, that's great. Flux, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm curious, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the the float community, the people who deliver floats to the communities uh, around the U.S. and around the world? Is there anything you'd like to share with them? I mean, what I would love to say is just how strong the community that I have found in this, you know, this field is. Uh, and I feel like that that's the biggest strength of float, you know, aside from the science, aside from the benefits, aside from that is creating community that allows us to interact with each other and to grow and, and you know, continue to thrive. And I feel like that the float community is, is such a wonderful place for that to happen. So just, just, keep doing that. Keep it up. And I'm going to keep doing it on my end. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Amy, for joining us tonight. Of course, Brian, behind the scenes, Flux, thank you again. Truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, and if and if you would like to be on the show, consider this uh, an invitation in advance to join us again. Thank I'd you, love sir. to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Before we go here, I do want to give a few more thanks. One is to FloatAway, the manufacturers of a, a few different styles of float tanks, including the Tranquility, now the Serenity, 10-inch diameter. Uh, Flux has probably probably floated in uh, the, the Liber circular float tank as well. FloatAway is making that, probably has met Colin as well. And uh, great, great people, Jenny and Colin, great people to be in contact with uh, for any questions you have about running a float center and, and, of course, for your float tanks specifically as well. But they do have a nice um, uh, spread of, of float tanks available for, for different types of float centers. We have the Tranquility at our place. 
Uh, and they also have float cabins for singles and for couples as well. Floataway.com is where you want to go. Let them know that we sent you. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We truly appreciate that you tune in week after week. Thanks so much to our Patreon supporters for putting wind in our sails. And for anybody who is interested, artofthefloat.com forward slash consulting. We are available for consulting and helping you at whatever stage you are in building your business or helping improve your business, we're available. And thanks again, as always, to Kim Hannon for taking our show notes each and every week. We truly, truly appreciate it. Remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing, so please spend some time there. We'll see you next week.